time. Here we go. This is actually a really interesting day in Lake Sam's history, and, and it would go unnoticed except that I'm going to notice it, okay? And, and that is this. You know, God has been doing a really interesting thing in this church for the last really couple of years now. And what he's been doing is, as you know, is he's really been returning ministry to the royal priesthood, meaning that we are the royal priesthood, the congregation is. And God has been returning ministry to us so that he can disciple us, so that we can grow, so that we're engaged in things that he has made us to be. This is that scripture that says everybody's supposed to be bringing their gift. And that the whole of that is what the whole of the church is supposed to be. So we've been doing this on every level. We've been doing it on a ministry level. All the ministries are being run this way now. We've been doing it in things like worship. We've even been doing it in things like the pulpit which is a pretty big thing. I mean, you know, if you've been here for the last couple of years, I don't know how many we've had now. I could go back and count them. But it would be well over 20 people have preached, from this, preached in this pulpit that are from the body. And, and most of them have never preached before. And frankly, it's gone pretty good. I mean, I'm just always thankful to the Lord, you know. I'm like, wow, this is great. Now, we've had somebody a little more proven today, so I can say that. But, but the bottom line is it's gone very well. And, and I want to say that that was level one. I want to show you what level two was. Just a couple of months ago, I was with a bunch of people from Lake Sam, and we were talking about something, and, and, and then now we were past our business part, and we were just kind of talking and having fun and doing all that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, somebody who was just sitting there said, you know, I think I have a sermon. Now, this is somebody who's never preached before. I've never asked him to preach, anything like that. But this is somebody who just, just spontaneously said, I think I have a sermon. And I want you to think about that for just a second. In what other church context would any congregational member ever say that? Ever have any reason to say that? See what I mean? It, it, it is so coming into our culture now that people are thinking, maybe God has something he wants to say through me. This is bringing your gift. I even called somebody just a couple of weeks ago, and I said, I've been praying. I think maybe you're one of the people that we should have preach. And this is somebody who would really not want to do that. And he said, I've been kind of dreading this call and the reason why is because I'm thinking that, you know, maybe God does have something for him. I'm not quite sure what it is yet, but it kind of feels like maybe God's been talking to me about that. Now, that's cool. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. And I do want to thank, let me just say this, I do want to thank this body for the grace that you've given. For the, you know, it's, it's like when you see somebody doing something for the first time, you know, we tend to pull for them and they're part of our family and we love them. So we pull for them. And I think that that helps. You know, that, that feeling that you're amongst friends and that, yes, there's guests here and so on, but bottom line, you know, we're supporting you. We're, we're trying to raise the boat for everybody. We're trying to take this to a place. Now, that's level two, and it's really cool for me to see that after a couple of years, that's starting to kick in. But I have to say today is something I never conceived of, and that is a level three. And, of course, God has a four and a five and a six and a seven and eight and a nine and ten as we just continue to follow him. And today, what's going on is, there's a guy in our congregation, Will Lees, who's going to preach today. Now, Will's preached before, and, and Will is one of these guys brought up in our youth group, and he's run the college and the career aged, and he's, he's on the worship steering team, and he's done all kinds of things, and this is a profitable minister of the gospel, even though he has a secular job, and this is what he does. This is a guy who lives his life in an exemplary way. The last time I introduced him for a sermon, I said, I wish everybody did life the way that Will does, because he does it very, very well. 
But I have to say, this is why this is level three. See, what happened is, is we all started wondering whether or not God was calling him to the pastorate. Now, the goal of having the people do the ministry is not that we all become pastors, professional pastors. The goal is, is that we be the royal priesthood. So, but, so it, you know, you're supposed to do this in your context, but Will just thought maybe God's doing this and maybe I should be going to school and, and really exploring this and seeing what happens and so on. And then, so he's going to school, right, in biblical literature. And what happens is, is that I decide, yeah, we're really supposed to do Ruth. And there's a concept in Ruth, which we're going to talk about, or Will's going to talk about today, which I have to say, I think it's the reason why this is in the Bible. This story is. Because there's a depth of a Hebrew word. If you've read the weekly update, you'll know kind of what I'm talking about. But there's a depth in this word that is just striking and incredibly important for us to understand about God. And I was figuring on doing that. And I was planning on doing it the second week of this thing. But then what happens is, is Will is studying Ruth. So God goes before. And as soon as we start, I decide to do Ruth, and he hears about it, he, he pings me and he says, you know, I've been studying Ruth. There's several themes that are coming out for me. He's discovered, like I have, that this is a book that you can read on a surface level and it's a nice story, or you can take the time, smell the roses, and you'll get a lot out of it. I mean, there's so much more in the book. And he said, and I said, fine, tell me what some of the things are. And he said, this word that we're going to talk about, he said, this is the one that really stands out for me. And right when he was telling me this, I was feeling in the Lord, I'm supposed to give this sermon to him. And I want you to think about that for a second. See, that is not just level one, being asked. That's not just level two, where people are starting to think about sermons. This is where God is now starting to go before and he's starting to bring pieces in, in different ways. I'm telling you, we're really on to something here. So I just want to introduce Will to come up here and talk to you about something that I believe God actually anointed him to talk to you about for us. So welcome him, would you? Wow, I don't know that I even want to preach now. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was a huge blessing to me, so thank you, Kurt. Um, yeah, like Kurt talked about, we are going to talk today about a word that I think is critically important, uh, and it's very deep, not only as we read scripture and seeing how God describes himself, but it comes down to his very nature and character, and also to how we're meant to image him in the world. So as we start, I have a question for everyone today. Do you feel deserving of God's love? Do you feel deserving of his steadfast, never-ending, despite your circumstances, despite how you turn against him, love? I think for me, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think there's a lot of things in my life where I can, I can look at it and go, you know what, I have been faithful in this area. And then there's way more that I've, just see my failure constantly. And when I live in light of looking at my failures, I think about that love, the steadfast love that God has for me, and think that I'm undeserving and unworthy. Maybe that's the way that you felt before as well. I think that for all of us, we really have two paths in front of us at all times. One is to live in light of his steadfast love for us, to act accordingly, to live accordingly to it, 
to be transformed and live by his love. The other way is a way that I think we all choose quite often. We've probably made decisions this morning to follow this other path. We choose a path that um, instead of pursuing and living in light of God's love, we live in light of our own interest and the things that are important in our own eyes. I'm going to talk about that today, and the way that I'll talk about it is I call that rebellion. The Bible defines it as sin. I know that I have a strong tendency to go towards this path of rebellion. I think it goes so deep that I know this might sound a little bit trivial, but it would be pretty typical of me that as we release today, in going after my self-interest, like, I'll get ready to walk out of here, and I'll start walking out real fast because I want to be the first person to, like, the snacks, and someone gets in front of me is going so slowly. <laughs> like, ah, why are you going so slowly right in front of me? Do you hate me or something? Oh, my gosh. And, you know, to be fair, I know it sounds kind of trivial, but then I would, like, try to dart across somebody's aisle and knock over their coffee just so I could get out in front and go do the thing that I want to do and pursue the thing that I want, being completely and utterly towards self and self-interest. I know it's trivial and it's kind of trite, but truthfully, this tendency towards self and pursuing what I want, it's not just in the big things that are really important, but it goes down to the very minute things of who I am and my nature. It goes down to my attitudes, my decision-making, my actions. I wonder how it is that God can love someone like that in a way that is steadfast. You know, we may ask, you know, hasn't God in his word, in the Old Testament, even promised that he would give us a new nature, a nature that wasn't like that. In Deuteronomy, after the law was given, uh, Moses said that there would be a day coming when the law wouldn't be written on stone tablets, but it would be written on our hearts. Uh, Ezekiel prophesied that there would be a day that would come that he would take out our heart of stone, give us a new spirit, and replace it with a heart that was tender and able to be moved by him. He would take away our heart of stone. I think that heart of stone epitomizes our tendency to rebel. Joel prophesied that there would be a day coming when his spirit would be poured out on all flesh, that it wouldn't just be for a select, elect few, but it was available to all. In light of those, in the life of Christ, we know that that day has come, that God has removed our heart of stone. He's written his commandments on our hearts. He's given us his spirit. But even in that, we still have a tendency, instead of living in light of his love, to live in light of our own interest. The story of Ruth is set in the period in the Bible that is really characterized by that, by self-interest. The period of the judges, Kurt talked about it last week, so I won't go into too much detail on it, but it was a period when, as the people would follow God and do what was right by him, as they would have an appointed leader above them to really guide them down the right path, they would follow his ways. God would bless them, prosper them, raise them up, take away the 
oppression that they may have been facing. But all too often, they would turn away, and I think the key verse says that there was no God, or there was no king in Israel in those days. Everyone did whatever was right in their own sight. I think for us, that's just as true as it was for them. That all too often, instead of doing what God has commanded, directed, by his loving grace shown us to do, but we take our own way. So I don't want to, uh, I don't want to feel like when I read the story of Ruth and its answer to that situation, that I forget that I'm not unlike the people that are in need of solution. I think at best sometimes we're like David. David was a man after God's own heart, but just like him we make royal mistakes. If God's love is like a committed relationship to us, like a marriage, it's steadfast, uh, he says that he won't waver on his commitments to us, then our choosing rebellion is like an affair. And it's not just that we do it once, but the fact that we repeat our sins, it means that we're committed to adultery. The story of Ruth is set in that period, and I think it gives us an answer to how to get past that self-interest, to see how it is that God would have us live. If we're meant to be God's image bearers, then living in this path where we live in light of his love is the way that that steadfast love can come to others. Whether we choose rebellion we're characterized by our own choices or whether we choose that path of love. We were meant to image God. And so whichever one we choose, it could affect the outcome of how he wants to be seen. Today, I want to pursue this other path, this one that is faithful, that's steadfast like God is. And to do that, we're going to dive into the story of Ruth. So um, that's where we're going, and we're going to have John Yalkovsky pray for the sermon today. John Yalkovsky is such an awesome guy. Uh, just so blessed by him. Uh, made a huge difference in my life, definitely, as well. So, Lord, we just thank you for today. We thank you that you've raised Will up. And then, Lord, that you've um, given him a, a word, that you've spoken to him. And, Lord, I pray that you, would, um, that you would just pour out your spirit, that we would hear you through his words, um, even in spite of his words, wherever it is, Lord, that we would hear you today. And I just thank you that you've raised him up um, and that uh, you have a great plan for him. Um, and Lord, uh, as we always do, I, I just pray for um, another church. I pray for um, uh, Eastside Foursquare, Lord, that you would come uh, to them as you're coming to us today, and that you would bless them richly. And uh, Lord, um, bless this service, and, and uh, let each one of us walk away touched by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay, so we're picking up in the story of Ruth. Last week, as Kurt talked about, uh, there was a radical decision made by Ruth to cling to Naomi. 
because of her actions, even before that point of decision, the fact that she would stick with Naomi when her, uh, her husband had passed away, she was going to a people that she didn't previously know, going to a place that she didn't previously know. Naomi described Ruth's actions as loving kindness, and she prayed to God. Um, when she prayed to God, she recognized that in her own circumstances, she saw that God's hand was against her. That's how uh, Naomi was processing everything that happened and all the loss that she faced. But in Ruth, she prayed that because of her loving kindness that she had shown her, that the Lord would deal kindly with her, and that was Ruth and Orpah, just as you have dealt with the dead and with me. What was Naomi really praying? The underlying Hebrew term, and you may have seen in the weekly update, is one we're going to talk about today, and it's hesed. Hesed, uh, there's numerous places in the Bible where that's used. It gets translated in our Bibles in a lot of different ways. Uh, loving kindfulness, faithfulness, commitment, loyalty, steadfast love, mercy. All these things are what Naomi was praying that God would show Ruth. It's a kind of covenantal, committed love. To say that it is something that, that we as people can practice uh, is possible, but the overwhelming amount of times that it's used in the Old Testament is to describe a love that God gives to his people. One that transcends everything that we can do. To give a New Testament example that we're maybe more familiar with, uh, the word agape, the unconditional, one-sided love, would be a pretty uh, decent way of understanding it. We can see hesed on the lips of many people as they praise God for what he's done, as they describe his character and look to understand who he is. They describe it not only by how God describes himself, but in their actions and in their lives. For example, one of the first times it's used is in the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob had deceived his brother. He had taken both his birthright and blessing that he thought was due him as the firstborn. Esau promised to avenge that, and so Jacob fled for his life. The only thing that he left with was his staff in his hand and crossed the Jordan River to get away from Esau. In that time that he was in this foreign land, God blessed him and prospered him. He gave him family, wealth, and possessions. Jacob, as he was called by God to go back to the land of his fathers, worried that Esau would make good on his promise. And he described what God had done in this foreign land, a place where he was running for his life by blessing him and prospering him with family, wealth, and possessions as hesed, as unfailing love. Despite the fact that Jacob's character was undeserving of God's love, he still received it. God's work with his steadfast love wasn't dependent on Jacob's character. After the Israelites were freed from Egyptian captivity, they sang a song of praise. And they described that the way had 
that God had brought them out of Egypt where they were slaves uh, across the Jordan River as hesed, unfailing love. In that case, the ending of, his, of their slavery was a picture of God's steadfast love. God's steadfast love was there despite the fact that they had been enslaved for 400 years. It wasn't dependent on their circumstances. I think one of the most clear examples that we have of that is with, with Moses. Uh, in the book of Numbers, uh, on 14, 19, talks about God keeping with his steadfast love. At that time, the people had just um, been brought to the edge of the promised land. So God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He had uh, provided for them day by day with food and sustenance so that they would survive in the wilderness. He had brought them to the edge of the promised land, the place that they uh, were promised by him that he would take them to. It was supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey, milk a staple that would provide for their every need in honey to describe the abundance, the sweetness, the joy that would go beyond what they needed but to what would bring pleasure. If that wasn't enough (laughs) of a picture of God's steadfast love, and then I think it goes even deeper here. They sent spies into the land to go and see uh, if it was a good land. They said, it's definitely a land that's flowing with milk and honey. It is awesome. But 10 of the spies, if you remember the story, said that it, there were enemies in the land, giants in the land, that they wouldn't be able to overtake. That they wouldn't be able to take, just like God had overtaken the Egyptians before seems kind of strange that they wouldn't believe that God would do that. Their fear and doubt was so strong that they picked up stones to murder Moses and Aaron. So Moses prayed. He, it was almost like at that point, God paused the scene. Uh, the way the text reads, it says they picked up stones to to kill Moses and Aaron, and then God started talking to Moses. And like, I just picture, like, I don't know, some kind of almost movie sequence where they put everything on pause. People are holding the stones and getting ready to throw them. And then like, God's just talking to Moses. Like, you know, I know that stuff's going bad down there, but let's talk this out. And what God said to Moses was, how long am I going to have to put up with these people that are stubborn, that choose what seems right in their own eyes, and not choose what it is that I've demonstrated to them over and over again in a steadfast way. Moses prayed to God. He spoke to God and said, God, remember your hesed, your loving kindness, your steadfast love. In keeping with your magnificent, unfailing love, please pardon the sins of this people, just so you have forgiven them ever since they left Egypt. In light of their most difficult, strongest rebellion, God didn't destroy them. Because even though they were choosing what was right in their own eyes and not trusting in God's promises, he determined to be steadfast. God's work for them wasn't dependent on their faith. I think that it's important for us to to recognize that our rightness of relationship with God isn't dependent upon the quality of our faith. 
It doesn't depend on how strong our faith is or how much we believe. It's completely dependent on the object of our faith. Completely dependent on Jesus Christ who makes us whole and right before, before God the Father. So after God paused that scene, he determined not to punish the people. Well, he, to wipe them out right then and there. And I think it goes to one place that's even deeper. After the incident with the golden calf, when the people had rebelled and chosen to worship another god in light of right where God was in front of them, as a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke, they could see who uh, some aspect of his nature and character, his power, and the fact that he was working for them to bring about good. Uh, Moses up on the mountain, the people make a golden calf to worship, saying, this is the God that brought you out of, out of Egypt. Well, when, uh, when God had brought about what he was going to do with them as, as a punishment for their rebellion, they decided we need to re-covenant ourselves to God. And so Moses went back and he wrote on two new tablets what the covenant and the commitment was. And then the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. God's very nature, the deepness of his character, his transcendent love that would work despite our circumstances and decisions. That's what it was that Naomi was praying for, for Ruth and Orpah. That this transcendent love would meet them fully. So how is it that God answered this prayer of Naomi? Well, from there we're going to pick up the story in chapter 2 of Ruth. Uh, Ruth 2.2 says, One day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone whose eyes I can find favor in, to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. While she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Then Boaz asked his foreman, Who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, She is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes' rests in the shelter. So I want to take a second and try to put ourselves into this story. If you were running a business, uh, would you want to harvest everything that you had planted? Get all of the reward for your work? Take advantage of everything that you had sown? Uh, for me, I, my secular job is at UPS. Uh, I was like a loading dock supervisor for a lot of years, and we always tried to set everything up so it was efficient and most co as cost-effective as possible. Uh, 
So if someone was supposed to work at a certain rate, well, we would plan our flow rate throughout the building. It would be like right at or just below that. So we would never waste what someone was capable of and process things as quickly as they could. I think we do that all the time in business. We set things up to be efficient, to be profitable, to really uh, make the most for us that we can. Well, in Israel, to explain a bit of this social custom where um, Ruth is allowed to go to the field, his place of business, really, and pick up some of what was there, um, I want to describe what it was that they were commanded to do. In Leviticus, God set up laws that would say that when you go to harvest your field, you are allowed to harvest all of it, except for the very edges of the field. I want to remind you that you were once slaves in Egypt. You were foreigners. You were sojourners. In the same way, as I bless your harvest, you are to leave the very edges of it so that the poor and the alien among you can be provided for. So Ruth is looking for favor in the eyes of anyone who will allow her to do that. And uh, it was required by the law but come on, this is a period of the judges. This is when everyone did what was right in their own sight. Boaz really had two options. He could have determined to do what was right in his own sight or be obedient to what it is that God had set up in his law to do. In that very way, I think a lot of times we think of law and what God had set up as being maybe negative, harsh, heavy-handed, something that we can't live up to. In a sense, that's true. We couldn't live up to the fullness of the law. But the law was there to be God's hesed, his loving kindness. For those that could not provide for themselves, God had set up a plan that they would be cared for, that they would be provided for. In a time where people could just choose self-interest and do whatever they wanted, Boaz determined to follow God's ways. And in that way, this hesed was starting to go forth. So then after that, Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they're harvesting and follow them. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you're thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Then she fell to her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? What was so strange about what Boaz did? He was really just simply following the law, right? He was just doing what it was that he was supposed to do. Why would Ruth react so strongly to fall to her face and say, why is it that I've found favor in your sight? I think it's because Boaz didn't only do what the law was required. He didn't just follow the letter of what God had told him to do, but went deeper to the spirit of what he was calling his people to do. Not just to allow there to be grain for someone else to gather, but that he would provide for her needs in a deeper way. We go back and think about, you know, how do you run a good business? 
I don't think that if there's someone that is there who's um, being provided for based on the work that you did, that you would tell that person, mm, don't go anywhere else. <laughs> Stay here, gather here, just here. You don't need to go anywhere else. The provision that I have, I'm going to share it with you. As much as you need is what I'll give to you. If I was harvesting a field, I don't think that that's what I would say. He goes even further than that. He doesn't just say, okay, what it is that the law is set up to do, you can do that and don't go anywhere else, but come in and be near. I'm going to treat you just like I would any of my other workers, even though you're not doing anything that benefits me. He said, come and take a drink. If you're thirsty, then we'll give you water too. Boaz doesn't only do the letter of the law, but the spirit of it. In his actions, he shows what it means to uh, act justly and love mercy. Would you call that loving kindness? Steadfast love? After that, Boaz says, Yes, I know, he replied, but I also know about everything you've done for your mother-in-law ever since the death of your husband. I've heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live among complete strangers. May the Lord the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I hope I continue to find favor in your eyes, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I'm not one of your workers. Remember what it was that Ruth said to Naomi? She said, let me go out into the field, find a place to harvest so I can find favor in someone's eyes. Then as Boaz responds to her, she asks, why have I found favor with you? And here she realizes that she has not only found favor, favor, but she has an opportunity for it to continue with Boaz. Favor and loving kindness are not the same thing. Loving kindness is this thing that transcends, it goes above and beyond our momentary decisions. Favor, I think in this story, could be characterized by uh, a human interaction. One where someone chooses, instead of acting in their own self-interest, they would choose to act in a way that benefits another. Ruth told Naomi, I want to go find that. Someone who will care for us, that will show us this favor. And she's found it in Boaz. The primary motivator of this favor is not our own desires. It's not doing whatever is right in our own sight, but doing what would be best for another. So we dive back into the story to see how deep this favor will go. At mealtime, Boaz called her, Come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with the harvesters, and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. He allowed her to eat bread, the very thing that he would process and make from the grain. Not only the raw materials, but the end result is what Boaz would give. 
When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her, and pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley there all day, and when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. She carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that she had left over from her meal. Boaz could have stopped at providing for her needs, but he gave of really everything that he had. God does the same with us. Were it not enough that he, that Jesus died on a cross for us so that we could have salvation, I think the way that John describes eternal life in, in his gospel is not only that it's some future thing. It's not a, only a length of time, but it's a quality of life, a quality of living that transcends and goes beyond what we have on our own. Jesus also talked about someone like this in his teaching. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, in Luke, there's someone that says, you know, what, really, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, what do you know based on what you've read in the law? And he said, well, it's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, okay, you're, you've spoken well, that's right. And so he said, well, Jesus... Who's my neighbor? Wishing to justify himself in his own actions. So Jesus starts this story, and he says that there was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was beaten by robbers and left for dead. And then a high important religious person, uh, a priest, came by and saw him. And I don't know about you, but anytime I read this story, like it looks maybe funnier in my head than I know for sure it is on the page. But I imagine this Levite, like, seeing him and just realizing, like, I don't want to be seen until, like, just ninja crouches around to try and not be seen by him, goes another way down another path so that he doesn't have to help this person. And then a Levite comes by, and the Levite does the same thing, just don't want to see him, just going to walk by, keep moving. I don't recognize the person in need there, so I don't have to help them. Well, then a Samaritan comes by. A Samaritan, a person maybe like a Moabite, like the story in Ruth, someone that's hated, that is um, not even respectable in the eyes of the people, goes, sees the man, has compassion on him, takes him back to the inn, gives the innkeeper two days wages and says, whatever you need, use this to help this guy recover. And if it's not enough, when I come back, I'll pay you for whatever it went over. The story of the Good Samaritan goes to a deep place of asking, what does it mean for someone to be my neighbor? Who am I meant to demonstrate God's love to? The man had this and then Jesus asked the man, well, tell me, in that story, who is your neighbor? And he said, the one who showed mercy. For us, when Christ calls us to follow that command of 
loving God with everything and loving our neighbor as ourself. What he's calling us to, I believe, is community. And the way that we define that as a church is that we're a family. That we're people who would take up each other's burdens and needs and care for one another. Uh, over the course of the last few weeks, I've really been overwhelmed by people in this body who have blessed me in a huge way. Uh, I, like Kurt said, like I work a full-time secular job. I'm going to school full-time, studying biblical literature. There's just like no, no other time. Like that's it. Those are all the things that I can do. Can't do anything else. And uh, I got notice um, with my living situation that the person who owned our place uh, had some problems with their mortgage, and so they were going to have to make where I was living my primary, their primary residence. And so I'm like, oh man, I have a month to figure out where I'm going to live, and I don't have any time to do anything with that. So what am I going to do? As I started looking at things, um, the first and best options always don't work out. I don't know if anyone else has experienced that when you're in a place of need. Uh, but that's how it was going for me. And I was at school about to take a test, and uh, I was next to someone that's actually in my Ruth class. Yes. Um, but he, I just, you know, hadn't really talked to him before. I'm like, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? Like, what's up in life? And he said, oh, man, I'm so stressed out. I don't know what I'm going to do. At the end of the semester, I graduate. I'm from Alaska, and I think I'm supposed to stay here, but I don't know where I'm going to live. And I'm like, yeah, me too. <laughs> like, at the end of the month. <laughs> and he's like, no way. Uh, but then he told me, well, if I move out of my apartment, then that means that they're going to have to pay more unless someone else moves in. So right from the beginning, he said, you know, let me go talk to these people and see if they have anyone in mind if not, like, I'm sure you're the guy. Like, they would love to have you. Like, yeah, I don't even know any of these people. Perfect. I don't know if they really would even want to do that. But that's exactly how it worked out. So then I knew that, okay, so come, like, December 18th or something, I'll be able to move in. I have a place to live. But then that still leaves a six-week gap. And if you're trying to find a place to live, a six-week gap is not a good thing. It's uh, definitely too long to live comfortably. And it's so short that there's not a whole lot you can really do with it. Like, you're not going to be, I would like to sign a six-week lease. <laughs> like, that would be awesome. Uh, no, it's not really going to work out. So I was in a place of desperation, not really knowing how God would provide. And then, I don't even know, like, as I look around, there's like at least 10 people that are here this morning that just said to me, you know what, we'll show you favor. We'll show you the very thing that it was that Ruth was looking for. We have a spare room, a couch, something. As long as you need, like, come and stay. When I think about what it is that God's calling us to in loving our neighbors, I see it demonstrated to Ruth by Boaz. I see it in the parable of the Good Samaritan. I see it in our church body as people would care for another and care for me. Now, there's more than one way that you can process that, but the way that Naomi sees this as Ruth goes back to talk to her is a very deep place. She says, where did you gather all this grain today? Naomi asks. 
where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. She said, the man I worked with today is named Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his hesed to the living and to the dead. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Remember Naomi's prayer of Ruth that prayer for Ruth that we started with? She said, may God show you hesed. May he show you transcending above what any person can do type loving kindness, steadfast love, faithfulness, loyalty, mercy. May he show you that. How is it that Ruth receives that? Well, just in the structure of Ruth, I think we see a clue to that. Naomi prays God's hesed for Ruth. Ruth seeks favor. Ruth asks Boaz after he's shown her some favor, why do you show me favor? Then let me continue to find favor. After that, Naomi sees that interaction as what God has done. Not only what Boaz has done, but this love that transcends and goes above and beyond is dealt through human hands. How is it that a love that transcends anything that we could do comes through our hands? That happens as instead of choosing what's right in our own sight, we choose to act favorably and bless another, being in line with God's plan and purposes. Uh, earlier, I said that you know we're God's image bearers, and that if we're meant to demonstrate what it is that God looks like to this world, then whichever path that we take is going to rightfully describe Him, or unfortunately, not image Him. Is God's ability to be seen? dependent on how we act? I don't think so. I think God can go above and beyond. But if we're here, if God has put us in this world, in the relationships that we have for a reason, aren't we meant to do it rightly? Uh, I was reading a commentary um, on Leviticus, because that's what you do. I don't know. Sometimes I get really excited about the law. Uh, I just think that there's something in there that I've ignored in my faith that God is meaning to speak hesed. And so I want to see what it is. And uh, one of the rabbis described it this way. He said, God is everywhere, of course, but in the former case, like talking about what happened in the wilderness and at Mount Sinai, he said that his presence was recognized. In the other cases, maybe like the period of the judges, maybe sometimes like our period today, in other cases, he may as well have been absent. God wants man to see him, to acknowledge him, and to act accordingly. That's why he created the world. He created the world so that man would be seen by him. And that is why it's up to man to decide whether God succeeds or fails. When I read that, it's convicting. 
And there's an element of it where I just say, that's not true. <laughs> Whether God succeeds or fails, he doesn't need me to succeed or fail. And I would say, yeah, let it be so. Amen. It's true. He doesn't need us to succeed or fail. But if he's created us to be his image bearers, then whether or not people rightly recognize him, just like the way that he was recognized by Naomi, is dependent upon the actions that we take. So how is it that we can demonstrate loving kindness, faithfulness, steadfast love to others? I think we all have opportunities every day where there's someone in front of us, someone before us, someone in our eyes that we can demonstrate favor to. Is there a day that goes by where we don't have an opportunity to do that? I don't think there is. Now, Hesed, steadfast love, it's not dependent upon the reception. Just like with Jacob, it wasn't dependent on his character. Just like the Israelites in Egypt, it wasn't dependent on their circumstance that they had been slaves. And even with the people in the wilderness, when they made a new covenant with God, or when they were brought to the edge of the promised land, it wasn't dependent upon the quality of their faith. It was dependent upon the object of their faith. Ultimately, the greatest hesed we know is that Jesus Christ died for us while we were still sinners. That he would take on our needs, the burdens that we couldn't free ourselves from, and he took them upon himself, being nailed to the cross with him. The record of debt that was against us was nailed to the cross with Christ. And it's not dependent upon how strongly we feel it, but who the object is. How can we go out and model who he is this week? I think all of us are probably in both these places, but maybe you might recognize one of them more than the other. Uh, for me, with like that living situation, I realized that I was in a place of need and in a place where I needed to find favor from someone. And as I was chewing with this concept and like wrestling with it and trying to understand how it is that God's love can come through human hands, when a friend said, yeah, sleep on my couch if it's too far to drive home at like an hour away in the middle of the night, like come crash with me. Or a friend that said, you know, I'm looking for something new too. Uh, maybe we find a place together. I could have processed that as just seeing how someone acted for me, how favor could be shown. But what I actually received was God's steadfast love as other people would extend it to me. So I was in a position of realizing my need and what was provided for me by others was a love that transcends what any person can do. But it was dependent upon their actions. At the other end of the spectrum, I think, and sometimes we realize that we have more that we could give. We don't maybe have that same felt need. And we're in a position to not only be thankful for God's provision, but to extend it to others. So I want to 
I guess, invite everyone to take that up. Whichever position you're in, um, and maybe on your sermon notes, you can write this opportunity. That this week, I will thank God for the hesed he has shown me through human hands. Or this week, I will extend God's transcendent, steadfast, loving kindness to someone with my hands. If God will ultimately be seen by how well we bear his image, what kind of world would we be transforming and living in if we were to be his image well? Would people look at us as a family and say, that's a family I want to be a part of? Something that transcends what they can do actually comes through them. Would our needs be met? Would we be transformed more into the character of Christ as we give out the best of what we have? Lord, I just thank you that you're a God who doesn't stop at our what we feel is a need for us. You go far beyond. You give us not only the promise of eternal life in the future, but you give us the quality of it now. Lord, I just pray that um, as we've heard your word and reflected on your word, that we would bear your image well, that we would be instruments who glorify you, that we would be people characterized by your loving kindness. Lord, ultimately, we want to glorify you in all things. And we know that our chief purpose <laughs> is to praise you forever and enjoy you forever. And God, as we extend our hands, that the world, that people in our family and outside, as we extend our hands to show favor, we pray that what it is that people would see is your loving kindness, your steadfast love. Lord, help us in places where um, we betray that steadfastness that you have. Lord, in places where it's easier to choose unbelief and doubt, help us. God, we know that not only did your work objectively make us free from sin, but Lord, I pray that your spirit would take away our subjective bondage that we still carry to it. Make us new, Lord. In Jesus' name.